All right, Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16. For the last two chapters in the book of Revelation, we have been preparing for this time of God's final wrath against a Christ-rejecting world. And at, at this point in the Great Tribulation, God has sent out His final warnings, and He has separated the world into two clear groups. And now we saw at the end of chapter 15, seven angels emerge from God's throne room with the seven final plagues to pour out upon the world. And while if we were to look at all the judgments that have come with the seven seals and the seven trumpets, they would have been, we looked at them and they were quite heavy. Their purpose, though, of those judgments was to turn the world back to the Lord. That isn't the case with these final bowls. For those previous judgments, they all contained some mercy in some way. But these bold judgments are God's full wrath without any mercy. His full wrath, judgment without mercy. So chapter 16, we begin in verse 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your ways and pour out the vials, these bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshiped his image. In verse 1, the Lord sends these angels now to fulfill their task. The great voice that comes out of the temple can only be the Lord because, remember, he shut himself in his throne room alone at the end of chapter 15. So this is the Lord's command to go your way. They had come out with these seven final plagues, but it mentions that an angel stopped them to pour or mix the wrath of God into the, uh, with, uh, that are in these bowls. They were to mix their plagues with that. So now that these calamities that they carry are mixed with God's undiluted wrath, they're instructed to go and pour them out uh, upon the earth. And so verse 2, the first bowl comes. The first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and there fell, there broke out a noisome and grievous sore. I've had boo-boos before, but they've never been described as noisome. Uh, that sounds very freaky. But the word here, noisome, it means ugly or disgusting. And so the idea is not necessarily that the, the sores themselves make noise, but that there's a noise created because of them. They are ugly. They're disgusting. Sometimes, you know, we, have, we live in Florida, so we've got frogs and lizards and things like that. And I have, I have kids, and so, you know, they'll see the, the frog on the window, you know, with his, you know, web feet and whatever, and it's a different color. And they, ew, you know. Well, these are grown adults. These are grown people going, and, ah, you know, that's why it's using this word noisome, ugly, disgusting, and they are grievous. It means harmful and infectious. The word here for sore, it means any type of skin abscess or ulcer, it describes usually a festering uh, pussy wound. Uh, have a beautiful Fourth of July barbecue, by the way. <laughs> And notice who it comes upon. It's selective, upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshiped his image. 
In the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast is always associated with worshiping his idol. You will never find these two things separate in Revelation. Taking the mark of the beast requires worshiping his idol. No one can take it by mistake. It's not like, you know, somebody comes through town with a program and saying, hey, sign up for this program and you can get this card and draw money directly out of your bank. It's great. Makes transactions really easy. And you're like, wonderful. I'd love to sign up for that. And you get the bank card in the mail and, you know, it comes with this little, you know, you know, critter that comes out and just ah, stamps your foot, you know, arm and says, you're in, you're part of the Antichrist army now. And you're like, no, I didn't want to be. No, it doesn't work like that. All right. You know, you can't show up to a doctor for a vaccine or sign up for a number and by mistake become part of the Antichrist rebellion. Okay. Don't listen to people who say those things. They're fear mongering. They're looking for people to follow them. You can't take it by mistake. It comes with worshiping his idol, declaring your allegiance to him and rejecting the Lord. It's something you can only do very clearly, very cognitively, very purposely. Now, the judgment we see here is targeted judgment similar to the plagues that, if you remember, only affected Egypt but didn't affect the people of Israel. Remember we would say, and this happened to Egypt, but it did not happen to the land of Goshen where the, the people of Israel lived, right? This is selective judgment here that they're experiencing with these ulcers. And so um, God is making a clear distinction between the rebels and the faithful, making it impossible for anyone to say, well, this is just a, a pandemic or it's just a coincidence. No, you got the mark, you got the sores. You don't have the mark, you don't have the sores. It'll be really clear. Now, <laughs> to those who want to interpret Revelation allegorically, uh, the similarities between this chapter and the uh, plagues that came upon Egypt in the Old Testament, that creates some serious problems for that approach because no one, no one out there believes that the boils of the sixth plague on Egypt were symbolic. No one does. But you have to if you're going to take these sores as symbolic or all the things of Revelation symbolically. If you don't, then your approach to Scripture is inconsistent. And that is why an allegorical approach to the book of Revelation is so dangerous because I become the one who picks and chooses what is literal and what is symbolic. I become the authority, not the word of God. And anytime someone is reading their Bible, studying their Bible, teaching the Bible, and they're the authority, instead of letting the Bible speak for itself, you're gonna come up with some weird ideas. Well, the second vial, bowl, verse three, says, and the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Now, the phrase the sea usually means the Mediterranean Sea in the Bible. However, it could mean the entire ocean here. I wouldn't fight with any about what it is. Uh, we can't know for sure. Either way, it's quite destructive. It says that, it became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul, everything that breathed died in the sea. Now, in Revelation chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, it said that in one of the trumpet judgments that the one-third of the sea became blood, causing death and destruction to everything associated with that part, one-third of the sea. This time, it does not say that it became blood. It says it becomes like the blood of a corpse or in a corpse. Now, that's, that's different uh, because I'm not a corpse, and if I bleed, that's one thing. But if someone dies and 
their blood does something different. If you want to do an interesting study, study that. When the heart stops bleed beating, blood immediately begins to pool in the body, usually going to the lowest portion of the body, and then it begins to clot. That's what it normally does. But after about a week, it becomes more fluid-like and then refuses to coagulate. Now, this is extremely similar to what happens when venom interacts with our blood. And so it gives the idea here that the blood of a corpse is that blood that's been poisoned, blood that has been, is not doing its job. And so the idea here doesn't tell us what causes this poisoning of all life in the sea, but it tells us that it kills everything that breathes, every man and every creature that breathes. Now, we saw a partial judgment of the sea, one-third of it, back in Revelation 8, verses 8 and 9, because God was still being merciful. He's still trying to call people back to Himself. But that's not the case this time. There is no mercy this time. This is God's unmitigated wrath. This is not Him trying to get people's attention. This is judgment without mercy. Well, verse 4, we get the third bowl judgment. And the third angel poured out his bowl upon or into the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, You are righteous, O Lord, which are and were and shall be, because you have judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another angel out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, this third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and fountains of water, so the fresh water sources, and they became blood. This is similar to the first plague that Moses called out upon Egypt with one exception. In that plague, it says all of the water in their homes, everything turned to blood. Here, if you got bottled water, it's okay, but all of the fresh water sources now become blood, which means your bottled water is going to need to be rationed at this point and eventually will run out. Now, Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 through 11 said that one-third of the fresh water sources in the world became contaminated. Remember that mountain fell in and contaminated the fresh waters, the wormwood, and the waters became as wormwood. That caused a lot of death, but this This judgment is far more catastrophic because it was only one-third of the fresh waters that were affected then. Now, it's all of them. They are all turned to blood. Now, some of you out there, we're all different people. Some of you are more visual than others. Some of you, you know, picture things very vividly. I know because when I teach, I see your face, you know. And that's okay, you know. We're all different, you know. And so, you know, maybe you're one of those today, and, and maybe you're just going to become one of those today as you picture this. But if the image of all fresh water sources turning to blood, not just red, but like actual blood, if that sounds disgusting to you, that's because it's supposed to have that effect. Because their actions have dis- disgusted God. And so he gives them a taste of what that's like. So the angel of the waters, verse 5, John hears this angel say, you are righteous, O Lord, which are and were and shall be, because you have judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Now, we saw four angels in charge of holding back the storm judgments in Revelation chapter 7. Remember, they said, hold them back until 
I sealed 144,000 in their foreheads. So we saw that before. This angel appears to have been in charge of holding back this full contamination of fresh water. And so this one who has a front eye view, a front seat, front row seat to this judgment, uh, this angel declares, Lord, you've done the right thing. You are righteous. You have done what's right and what is proper. For he says, O Lord, which are and were and shall be. You know, you are the Lord. You're the one who's in charge. They're rebelling against you. You're the one who is eternal. And as the eternal one, you are the only one who is qualified to know when judgment is right and proper. For you have had the opportunity to measure us in a way no one else can. The Lord has measured us over time. He knows when the time is right and what kind of judgment is correct. And so the water is something we count on all the time. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was so weird. Running, I would go sometimes to two or three places trying to find water, you know, and that was weird. You know, at, at least then we still had running water, even though that's not the water I want to drink tip, uh, typically in my neighborhood. Um, we at least had it. But now can you imagine, you know, there's just none. Very much things we normally count on to work are breaking down well, this verse reveals two truths to us. First, it shows that however much we've broken our world, God is indeed all-powerful, and He can still control the wind and the waves and the water however He pleases. He is God. He is in control. We can think we're in control. We can think we can put whatever systems in place that can block these things or whatever. The truth is, God can just turn it to blood if He wants. Which, by the way, incidentally means that Jesus must be God since he also controlled the wind and the waves, something we cannot do. The second truth this verse reveals is that God could have done this at any moment, just as he drowned the entire world in a flood at one point. That he doesn't do it now, that he hasn't done it yet, proves that God is merciful that he is merciful, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. For the angel declares this is the right thing to do. Now that God does so at this point in time means he is only giving humanity what they deserve. And so that's what the angel declares. For they have shed, the word they're shed, it's actually a word play here, it means to pour out. Just as you, as you have poured out your wrath by turning the water to blood, it's because they have poured out the blood of saints and prophets. Saints, those who belong to God. Prophets, those who speak for God. They have shed the blood, poured out the blood of God's people and his messengers. And so, Lord, you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Worthy means when two things measure up. So when it's fitting, what is corresponding to what's expected, you know, I expect that, you know, if I've got something that weighs five pounds over here, it's going to take five pounds over here to equal it out. And so what they say is this is just, it's fair, it's right. In verse 7, another angel agrees. And I heard another from out of the altar. Uh, some would say that it's actually the altar speaking here. Maybe it is, but the language seems to describe that it's another one who is from out of the altar, someone who's normally by the altar, another angel. He says, even so, which means, yes, you're right. That's true. 
It is fitting. It is proper. It's the right thing to do. Even so, it is true, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments, your verdicts, how you decide to do things. You know, it's interesting if you talk to people, when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I, I tend to I work well with kind of patterns usually, and so I have a kind of a way I do it. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them first about, you know, the Ten Commandments and, you know, and, and I can get them to a place where, look, yeah, I, I am guilty of violating the Ten Commandments, you know. Uh, I'll say, well, you know, do you think you go to heaven or hell then? Almost always the person goes, well, heaven. And I say, well, how can you go to heaven? You already said you're, you know, lying, thieving, adulterer at heart, you know, you already admitted to that. Why would you go to heaven? Because God's forgiving. That's almost always, I will hear it probably nine out of ten times. Humanity tends to default to the idea that God should be merciful to us, that mercy is, is actually fairness. The idea of God being just, giving us justice in punishment offends us. That's not right. But as we see here, heaven does not share that opinion. It does not share that opinion. The angels who, by the way, also have the benefit of all history, they hold the opinion that justice should be God's default based on our behavior. That's their opinion. Their opinion when they see this is about time. This is what they've deserved all along. This is what makes the most sense to us. That justice is most fair. And you know, this another from out of the altar has the best perspective from heaven to understand mercy and judgment. Because this individual looks at the altar and sees the blood of Christ there, you know, the, the means of how we can experience God's mercy. And, and he looks at the altar, he sees the blood of Christ, the thing that triumphs over our sin if we'll place our trust in it, but he also looks at the fire under the altar and knows that the only thing that can satisfy that wrath of that fire for our sin is the blood of Christ poured out for us on the cross. And so this angel knows better than any other created being that if the blood of Christ is rejected by a person, then that judgment of the fire is the only it's the most proper course of action for God to take. And you know, when we get to heaven at a certain point, we will add our voice to this claim as well, that God is just to do this. In Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2, it says, and after these things, this is after all the judgment, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. We will say the same thing. When we've been in heaven for just a little while and we understand the way the angels understand and we understand the way God understands, we will go, this is the right thing to do. In fact, all will have that opinion in the end. For it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This was right. This was just. Now, that means to hold a different opinion about God's fairness now is the height of arrogance. Because when I do so, what I am claiming is that I have more knowledge, higher morals, and a better perspective than both God who is eternal and the angels who are ancient compared to me. And that type of arrogance 
It's not rooted in someone's search for truth and saying, well, I, I just don't, I don't want to take the Bible at face value. I want to ex- expand my horizons. I want to understand everything. It's not rooted in that. It's me making myself to be my own God. It's me elevating myself above the Lord and above the angels. And that is just another mark of rebellion. That's all it is. We will not have this man to rule over us, right? That's the desire of the Antichrist. That's the desire of these rebels. Verse 8, we move to the fourth bowl. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl into the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Scorch just means to cause someone to suffer because of intense heat. Jesus used this word to describe what happens to the seeds that grow up but have no root. It says the sun scorched them and they withered. So when a plant is scorched, uh, it it occurs from exposure to too much light. Um, You know, we have made some forays into plants over the years, and we usually make one of two errors. You either have them involved in too much light, and they get, it, it scorches them, or we overfeed them, we drown them, you know? And so we've had to learn that you have to temper the water, you know? Uh, you have to temper the sunlight, you know, or they, they, for certain types of plants, or they get scorched. Revelation 8 verse 12 tells us that the sun is already experiencing some kind of turmoil that causes it to go dark for one-third of the time that it normally shines. But now we're going to see that the two-thirds of the time that it's still shining, it, it causes pain, intense pain. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 actually predicted this judgment. Malachi 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. Find Matthew and turn left, you'll be right there. Matthew 4 verse 1. <clears throat> For behold... The day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall, not, shall leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 2 of Malachi 4 seems to hint that somehow, though, this, this sunlight will not affect believers. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. In other words, you won't have to, you'll be a, it'll be normal for you, it won't be abnormal. I, I don't know how that works, but it does show us that whatever causes this heat is supernatural. It's not just global warming. This will be supernatural judgment that actually picks and says, you get scorched, but you're okay. Now, these four judgments, one after the other, when you really think about it, they sound literally like hell on earth. But the reaction of those who experience these judgments show their commitment to their rebellion against God. And the men that were scorched, verse 9, with great heat, it says they blasphemed the name of God. They, uh, blaspheme means to slander, to speak in a way to harm someone's reputation. They slander the name, the character of God, in particular, which has power over these plagues. They slander God's right to act. They slander God's jurisdiction to judge. 
Instead of giving God his rightful place in their lives, they didn't repent to give him glory. Instead of giving God his rightful place in their lives, they declare that God isn't worthy of having such authority. (laughs) They double down on their commitment to their rebellion. He, He shouldn't have the right to judge us. Someone needs to stop him. We need to stand up. We need a hero. And of course, that's been the preaching of the false prophet. We have a hero. He conquered death. He can't be killed. We can take this God on. He must be deposed. And so rather than repent, they will dig in deeper on their support of the Antichrist and his rebellion against the Lord. Verse 10, bowl number 5. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the seat, the throne of the beast, the Antichrist. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not of their deeds. This fifth angel pours out his bowl, not into the throne of the beast, but upon the throne of the beast. It's likely a reference to his capital, and then it affects all of his kingdom. It becomes full of darkness. Now, this darkness is very similar to the ninth plague upon Egypt, except there it only lasted three days, and we have no indication of when this darkness ends. Um, The darkness in the plague upon Egypt was described as a darkness that could be felt. Um, This supernatural darkness is a judgment that makes life devoid of God's presence. That's the only way you can have a darkness that can't be felt. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, and now God removes His presence completely, and so it is life devoid of God's goodness, of God's presence in this localized setting. I can't imagine what it would be like, life would be like to be devoid of God's goodness. I mean, the Bible tells us that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust right now, right? We think of that in Florida as a bad thing, but back then, that in, that, in an arid environment, that's a good thing, you know? You know, yeah, God pours out His rain upon everybody. No, 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 this is a good thing. God blesses with rain, even the wicked, you know? He, he provides rain for their crops. God's nature is goodness. He is kind to us. He's merciful to us he dr- to try to draw us to repentance that way. Even in His wrath, God has been drawing people to Him in the book of Revelation so far, but not now. This will be a darkness, and He'll remove His goodness. He'll remove His presence. Exodus 10.23 stated that this darkness confined, uh, you know, people to their homes. It removed all interaction. I mean, we just got a small taste of that with the lockdowns where, you know, you had to stay in home. But then at least you could still Zoom. At least you could still interact with one another and see one another. This isn't like a hurricane in Florida where you get your hurricane supplies and turn the candles on and maybe, you know, crank the generator up, you know. No, this is where you turn the candle on and there's no light. Light just doesn't work because God who is light has removed himself. You know, it's fascinating and, you know, scientists are like, you know, well, you know, we get light from the sun, we get light from the moon and God tells us that. But before any of that was created, the Bible says God said, let there be light and there was. Do I understand that? No, but I don't need to because God who is, is light, he can shine something that maybe even we're not aware of of it being around us. 
something that can even override the light if he pulls it away. Now, I don't know how long this darkness lasts. I personally don't think it lasts to the end of the tribulation because of the other things that happen. I think the campaign of Armageddon is probably going to be a little difficult if nobody can see. But however long it lasts, it is the precursor to Babylon's final judgment. The lights go out, and then God will overthrow the city. And as we see here, it has an awful effect on those who are within its limits. It says, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Gnawed uh, is kind of gross. Um, it just means to bite, but it's in the imperfect tense, which means it's a continual biting that doesn't last forever, but it goes on for a while. And they do it because of the pain, it says. Now, the word here for pain is a wide-ranging word. It can speak of good pains, like an athlete who's, you know, exercising to train for an event. Those are good pains, right? Or at least that's what I've been told. And then it can refer to negative physical pains like hard labor or fatigue, but it can also talk about emotional pain like misfortune, distress, or suffering. Now, habitual biting of your lips or your cheek or your tongue is a documented response to high-stress situations. In fact, tongue chewing in particular is a common stress response, which this is interesting. You got to come to church to hear this stuff. Primarily, doctors find it in college students during exam week. They treat lots of college students after exam week for tongue wounds and and because they've been biting their tongues because it's a stress response. Well, while there are other reasons that they could be experiencing this pain that causes this stress response, anything, pick any of the first four judgments, but the primary meaning here is probably distress. And yet, despite all this stress and pain, they still don't repent. It says, and they blasphemed. Going, and the, the nature of the way this uh, sentence is constructed, right along with being stressed out and chewing on their tongues, they're blaspheming, slandering the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they do not repent of their deeds. The image that we're left here in verse 11 with is like the blinded men of Sodom, the the men of Sodom who wanted to rape the guests that Lot had there, and the angels came out, the guests, and struck them with blindness. It's always been one of the passages in the Bible that's fascinating me because it mentions that while they were blind, they were still groping for the door to rape Lot's two guests. Despite the fact that they've just experienced something supernatural where you can't see, they are still groping for the door to try to rape Lot's two guests. This is very similar here. They refuse to give up their way of life. It's like with everything burning around them and their entire lives falling apart, they're going, you can't take our utopia from us. Don't you see how great things are? It's absurd. And while we may not see that type of an extreme in our own circle of influence often, it, it does hit close enough to home because how many of us have stubbornly persisted in our own ways even though it's all crashing around us? How many of us have seen others do the same thing? And you're like, man, wake up. Don't you see? You're wrecking everything around you. Don't you see? And thus, as we stop here, I want to spend some time on the campaign of Armageddon, so we'll pick it up in verse 12 later on, but not today. But there is a warning as we get to verse 11 for you and for me here. 
And the warning is this. I don't need to actively blaspheme God's name or shake my fist at the sky to adopt an antichrist mentality. The antichrist mentality, remember, is the idea that I don't need the Lord, I don't need his ways. And that can happen just as easily for the man preaching in a pulpit just like this one if that man is someone who refuses to do what he preaches. So if you're in a stubborn place with the Lord right now, I say to you, please repent. Please acknowledge that God's ways are best, that he loves you, and that he is worthy of trusting. Because here's the reality. If we're gonna live life on the, on the terms of saying, well, I want God to be fair with me, there are scripture that, that talks about that. If we don't want to operate in the realm of mercy, James chapter 2, verse 13, it says, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't want what's fair, <laughs> you know? I don't want what's fair at all for me because I know what's fair for me. It's what the angel said here. I want mercy. I want grace. Because that makes me a child of God. That makes me a joint heir with Christ. And that leads me to the promised land, you know, that abundant life here in heaven with the Lord forever. Amen? Judgment or justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve, and grace is being gifted something I haven't earned. I want mercy and grace. And God has one requirement for mercy and grace. You come to him on his terms, not your own terms. In Psalm 85, verse 10, we read about it in our scripture reading. It says, mercy and justice, they've met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. And that was a prophecy speaking of the cross. Jesus is where God's justice and mercy meet. It's in the merciful act of the cross that mercy triumphed over justice like James declares here. It was his great love for us that brought him to that place where he took on a body, became a man, lived a sinless life, and then died in our place. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, that's what we're remembering. We're reminding ourselves of what it cost him, of the great love that caused him to pay that cost for us, and of the great privilege we have now to yoke in with him. You know, Jesus, he says, listen, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. Those are his terms. You say, well, I want to yoke, I want to do my own thing over here. You yoke in with me. He goes, no, it doesn't work like that. Come unto me, yoke in with me. My yoke's easy, my burden's light. It's the best yoke you can have. Come yoke in with me, and I'll give you rest for your souls. And so as we, the band comes forward, and, and we're going to, take the Lord's Supper this morning. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us. This is a time to recommit ourselves to yoking in with him, to remember his goodness and his love and what he did for us, that he's worthy of our trust, that he triumphed over sin and hell and judgment through his mercy, and to yoke in with him anew. So, Lord, we come to you this morning, and, and that's what we say. We want to yoke in with you anew and afresh. We remember, Lord, what it cost you to, to win this opportunity for us, to make us your children, your sons, your daughters, join heirs with you. 
And we come and we yoke in with you. We want to follow you, Jesus. We want you to take the lead. We don't want to do our own thing. So Lord, for everyone this morning that may be returning to you or laying down that thing they've been stubborn with, will you let them know they're, they're forgiven, Lord. Let them know they're loved. And we'll let this be a rich time as we remember what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.